Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and we will read beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Amen. This is the very word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we are privileged to be your people. We were once not a people, but now we are your people. We once had not received mercy. But now we have received mercy. And all of this is because of Christ. Father, as we have read this wonderful and glorious passage on marriage, we thank you for how it points to Christ. And how we are reminded of his amazing and saving love for sinners like us. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have loved the church and that you gave yourself up for her, that you might sanctify us, that you might cleanse us by the washing of water with the word, that you might present us to yourself in all of her glory without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who has made us to be holy and blameless in the sight of God. 
We thank you that you have made us to be a part of your body, that we are your body. And we thank you that your love is a sovereign love, that you have set your love upon us not because we have earned it or deserve it, not because we are lovely or lovable, but because of your sovereign choice. And we thank you that your love for us is everlasting, that it is a love that can never be terminated. It will never cease, it will never stop, not even when we sin. And that even when we do sin and go astray, that you pursue us with love and restore us back to yourself. Father, we are amazed as we consider these things. We thank you that we, as your people, are the bride of Christ and that he is our great husband. And we thank you for the great hope that we are reminded of on this Lord's Day. We thank you that not only did Jesus offer himself up for us, but he was buried and he rose again and he is alive forevermore. And that he has conquered the enemies of our soul, our sin, the devil, and the grave. We thank you for the great hope, the sure hope that you've given to us, the hope of heaven and the new creation. We thank you that death is not the end, that the sting of death has been removed as it has been defeated by Christ. Father, we pray that you will strengthen and nourish your people today. Take your word and use it to be medicine to our souls and food to our souls and feed us and strengthen us and even bring conviction of sin where that is necessary. I commend this congregation to you, to your glory and to your work of sanctification. May you strengthen every heart that is here. And we pray above all things that the Lord Jesus Christ will be prized and savored and exalted in our midst, that he will receive all of the glory. And we pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Now please open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. And I want to direct your attention to verse 19. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, Part 3. As we begin our time in the Word of God, I want to read verses 18 and 19 together in your hearing. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. This is the Word of God. About two weeks ago, the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was killed in a United States military operation in Syria. I'm sure all of you heard about this on the news. But what you may not have heard is that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff named the operation after a woman, Kayla Mueller. Kayla Mueller was an American humanitarian worker and a Christian who was taken captive in 2013 by ISIS fighters in Syria. While under their custody, 
She was tortured, she was abused, and she was even raped by al-Baghdadi himself. She was then murdered by ISIS in the year 2015 at the age of 26. According to other prisoners, Kayla Mueller was forced to wear an Islamic headscarf, but she refused repeated demands to renounce her Christian faith and become a Muslim. Hearing this story is a dramatic reminder of Islam's low view of women. To give you a sense of the Islamic view of women, I have listed on your sermon notes four facts from their own writings. This is not anti-Muslim rhetoric. This is information that comes from their own writings. Number one, according to the Quran, men are permitted to beat their wives into subservience. Number two, according to Muhammad, women lack common sense because their minds are deficient. Number three, according to Muhammad, most of the inhabitants of hell are women because of their ungratefulness to their husbands. And then number four, according to the Quran, Muslim men are permitted to rape their female captives and slaves. In light of these things, it is unconscionable that certain Muslim apologists actually teach that Muhammad was a champion of women's rights. Nothing could be further from the truth. But tragically, a low view of women did not begin with, nor is it limited to Islam. Long before the rise of Islam, the Greek empire viewed women in contemptible ways. On your notes, you will see the quote by the Greek statesman and orator Demosthenes. And he said this, quote, We have courtesans, and if you don't know what those are, those are prostitutes. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. I would say that is a low view of women. But in addition to Islam and in addition to the ancient Greek empire, there was also a low view of women in a place that you might not expect it to be, in ancient Judaism. Again, looking at your sermon notes, look at the first quote from Josephus. He is a very notable first century Jewish historian. His writings are very valuable to us. And yet he says this, the woman is in all things inferior to the man. Rabbi Judah, who was a contemporary of Josephus, said this. This is really like a prayer. A man must pronounce three blessings each day. Blessed be the Lord who did not make me a heathen. Blessed be he who did not make me a woman. Blessed be he who did not make me an uneducated person. Jewish rabbis in the first century A.D., were encouraged not to speak to women, not to teach women. 
Women enjoyed very few legal rights in Jewish society. They were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. And according to Rabbi Hillel, a notable rabbi in the first century, a man could legally divorce his wife if she burned his meal over something that trivial. And so prior to the advent of Christianity, first century Judaism was male-dominated and a male chauvinistic society. A low, a very low view of women prevailed as they were regarded as second-class citizens. And so, dear people, think about this. Historically, the world has proven to be a very unfriendly an unkind place for women. And so I ask you, is there a place in this world where women can find refuge? Is there a place? The answer is yes, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has designed the church to be a place where women are to be loved and protected and valued and cared for. In particular, God has designed Christian marriage to be a place where women are to be loved and protected and valued and cared for. That brings us now to our passage in Colossians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul begins to address specific groups of people within the church, the first two of which are wives and then husbands. As we have learned in our study of Colossians chapter 3, as Christians, we are a new humanity in Christ. And Paul is showing at this point what the new humanity in Christ looks like in the home, in the marriage relationship. While Christian men and women share a wonderful equality together in Christ, as we noted last time, equality does not mean sameness. That is a modern tenet of feminism, that equality means sameness, but that is not what the Bible teaches at all. God has designed the marriage relationship to function according to distinctive roles for husbands and wives. Over the last two weeks, we have looked at Paul's instruction to Christian wives in verse 18, and we learned that the one overarching responsibility that Christian wives have in the marriage relationship is to submit to their husbands, to the leadership of their husbands. And now this morning, we are going to begin to look at Paul's instruction to Christian husbands in verse 19, and I say begin because this will take more than one message. If you look at verse 19, you will notice that Paul gives two commands to Christian husbands. One is positive and one is negative. This morning we will begin to look at Paul's positive instruction to Christian husbands. And so our first point for this morning is Roman numeral one on your notes, the divine design for loving leadership in marriage in the first half of verse 19. Paul begins the verse by saying husbands. He is directly addressing the husbands within the local church. And with respect to their role in the marriage relationship, he gives them a command, husbands, love your wives. 
Now, the first thing that I want you to understand here is that Paul's teaching was absolutely revolutionary. Because we in the modern world are so familiar with what the Bible teaches, it is easy for us to miss the revolutionary character of Paul's command to husbands to love their wives. This teaching was revolutionary because it was so countercultural to how marriage was viewed in the ancient world, both in the pagan culture and in Judaism. On your notes, you'll see the quote by Skevington Wood, very insightful to the world of Paul's day. He says, in Greco-Roman society, it was recognized that wives had obligations to their husbands, but not vice versa. So do you understand what he is saying? Do you, do you see what he is saying in that quote? Just the bare fact that Paul gives husbands a command of any kind regarding their responsibility in marriage was revolutionary in the ancient world. Husbands normally did whatever they wanted to do in the marriage. But in a Christian marriage, wives have obligations and so do husbands. That is very familiar to our ears, but in the ancient world, this was stunning. And so the fact that Paul gives a command at all to Christian husbands is revolutionary in itself, but the content of the command is even more revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives. Now, given the fact that Paul commands Christian wives to submit to their husbands, we might expect Paul to say something different than what he does here in verse 19. We might expect Paul to say to the husbands, husbands, lead your wives. Or husbands, exercise authority over your wives. But that's not what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives. There are at least two reasons why Paul does not explicitly command husbands to lead their wives. First of all, because he doesn't need to. By virtue of what he says to the wives in verse 18, it is already understood that God has designed the husband to be the leader in the marriage. In addressing Christian wives in Ephesians 5 and verse 23, don't turn there but listen. In addressing Christian wives in Ephesians 5, 23, Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. In the egalitarian versus complementarian controversy that is really raging in full force in our day, the meaning of the word head that is used in the New Testament, the Greek word kephale. The meaning of this word head is hotly disputed. Egalitarians argue that head does not mean authority. They say that it means source when used in the marriage relationship. But if you were to do a study of this word, as many have done, you will understand that the word head means authority. It always means authority. And so the husband is the head of his wife, meaning that God has entrusted to him the role of leadership 
in the marriage. And so Paul does not instruct husbands to lead their wives here in Colossians 3.19 because their leadership in marriage is already assumed in verse 18. It's already assumed in how he instructs the Christian wives to submit to their husbands. Secondly, Paul does not explicitly tell husbands to lead their wives because his greatest concern at this point is not that husbands would lead their wives, but how they would lead their wives. That the husband is the leader in marriage is a given in Paul's mind as he writes this letter, but how the husband exercises his leadership role within the marriage is not a given. It must be addressed. And so instead of telling the husband to exercise his authority in the marriage relationship, he tells them how they are to exercise their authority in the marriage relationship. Namely, they, we, we must lead in love. Think of it this way. For the husband, authority is not the priority. Love is the priority. Now, to be clear, Paul is in no way diminishing the leadership role of the husband. But again, his greatest concern is for the husband to express his leadership in a loving manner. In a loving manner. And so, husbands, let me address you specifically. You are the leader of your family. You are the leader in your home. But when you think about your relationship with your wife, do you primarily think of yourself in terms of lordship or love? Which one is it? You show me a husband who is preoccupied with his authority in the marriage, and I will show you a wife that is to be pitied. The verb love that Paul gives here is a command. Therefore, it is not optional for a Christian husband to love his wife. It is a matter of obedience to God. Husbands, you are under divine authority. You are under the very authority of God. And furthermore, the verb is in the present tense, meaning that this is to be a way of life for Christian husbands. You are to love your wife not just on your wedding day, not just during your honeymoon, not just on her birthday, not just on your anniversary, not just on Valentine's Day. You are to love your wife all the time as a way of life. But what does it mean to love your wife? What does it mean? The basic general answer is this. To love your wife is to seek her highest good. To seek her highest good. It is to speak to her and treat her in such a way that you are actively seeking her highest good. Therefore, love is the antidote to two, the two major mistakes that husbands often make in their marriage, tyranny and passivity. 
to be a dictator in the home or to abdicate one's leadership responsibility in the home are the sinful tendencies of husbands. But they both fall woefully short of God's design for marriage. If a Christian husband seeks the highest good of his wife, he will neither be tyrannical in his leadership nor will he be passive in his leadership because neither of these express the highest good for his wife. And so again we ask, what does a husband's love for his wife look like in the marriage? It looks like this, seeking her highest good. But how do we become more specific with that? How is a Christian husband to specifically love his wife in such a way that he seeks her highest good? Well, to answer that question, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, the passage that I read earlier in our service. I remind you that Ephesians is a sister epistle to Colossians. And in Ephesians, Paul gives a fuller treatment on Christian marriage. In fact, what he says in Ephesians chapter 5 is the longest, most comprehensive teaching anywhere in the New Testament on the subject of marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. In this passage, Paul tells husbands to love their wives, not once, not twice, but three times. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife. Is there any doubt what the one overarching responsibility is that God has given to a Christian husband? There is no doubt. He is to love his wife. But again, what does this specifically look like in marriage? To give you sort of the big picture of our passage, Paul begins his instruction to husbands with the command to love their wives in the opening part of verse 25. And then in the rest of the passage, 25b through verse 33, Paul shows how a husband is to love his wife. And in showing how a husband is to love his wife, he gives several characteristics of a husband's love, the first of which is sacrificial love. In verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, in verses 22 to 24, Paul says that wives are to follow the pattern of the church's submission to Christ. And here, now in verse 25, Paul says that husbands are to follow the pattern of Christ's love for the church. And how does Christ love the church? With sacrificial love. By offering himself as the great sacrifice for our sins. And so husbands, you are to sacrifice yourself for the highest good of your wife. You are to love your wife with a Calvary-like love. You are to love your wife sacrificially. And this can take many different forms in the day-in and day-out living of life. It might mean saying no to a promotion at work. It might mean saying no to a recreational activity. 
There are many husbands who do all kinds of recreational activity at the expense of their wife. It certainly means this, really listening to your wife. It means that you have meaningful conversations with her so that you can find out what her needs are and then meet those needs. As a husband and wife, you're not just roommates. It's a relationship that is much deeper and substantial than that. It means that you work hard to understand what makes your wife feel loved. As we have said before, submission in marriage is one-directional. It is not two-directional. A husband is not called to submit to his wife, but I would quickly add this. The husband is called to sacrifice himself for the highest good of his wife. And that is an even higher calling. On your notes, there is a quote by Owen Strand. It looks like you would pronounce it Strachan, but it's Strand, Owen Strand. He says this, a husband images Christ when he looks at his wife and thinks, I would die for that woman, gladly. Husbands, can you look at your wife and say, I would die for that woman? Gladly? Do you sacrifice yourself, your wants, your preferences, your likes for the highest good of your wife? Wayne Grudem is one of the most important theologians of our day. And for many years of his career in ministry, he taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the Chicago area. It's a a prominent, prestigious seminary. But his wife, Margaret, suffered a car accident. And over the course of those cold winters in Chicago, they became very painful for her. And so Dr. Grudem decided that he needed to move his wife to a warmer climate. This is going back to to the day of phone books. And he opened up a Phoenix phone book. And he discovered that there is a seminary in Phoenix. He didn't know it was there. Long story short, he resigned his position from the prestigious school in Chicago, and he took a job at this almost unknown school in Phoenix for the sake of his wife's greatest good. This is an example of what it means for a husband to sacrificially love his wife for her highest good. And so a Christian husband is to love his wife with a sacrificial love and also with, secondly in our list, a special love. In this passage in Ephesians 5, Paul, or rather Christ, is the lover. He is the husband. And the one that is loved is the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And as such, She and she alone is the special object of Christ's love. Look at the text carefully. Look at verse 25, the second half of the verse. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, that he might present to himself the church 
in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. For no one, verse 29, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Do you see how Paul belabors the point that it is the church that is the peculiar, particular, special love of Christ? In other words, Christ has an exclusive love for the church that he does not have with those or for those who are outside of the church. And the exclusive love that Christ has for his bride is the basis for a husband's exclusive love for his wife. Husbands, you are to love your wife in the same way that Christ loves his wife with a special, peculiar, particular, exclusive love. You are to love your wife like no other. Now, I want you to think back to Genesis, the early chapters in the Garden of Eden, when God made Adam and Eve. There were two things that Adam said to Eve. The first thing, when he saw Eve, he said, whoa, man. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. He was so amazed at what God had made that he said, whoa, man. The second thing that he said to Eve is this, you're the only woman for me. Well, she was the only woman in the world. It's easy to say that when she's the only woman. But what Paul is saying to husbands, to Christian husbands, is that while you live in a world with billions of other women, there is only one woman that is the only woman for you, and that is your wife. And so think about this. As a Christian, you are called to love all people, but you are not called to love all people the same way. You are called to have a special kind of love for one person, for your wife. You are to have a kind of love for her that you don't have for any other woman or really for any other person. She is unique. And so, husbands, let me ask you some questions. Do you love your wife like this? Do you love your wife with an exclusive kind of love? Do you have eyes only for your wife? Or do you allow your eyes to wander? Do you watch anything or read anything that arouses your affection for someone other than your wife? Do you have relationships with other women that are inappropriate? In the language of Proverbs 5.15, speaking to husbands, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. God has given you water to drink, and you are to drink it in one place with your wife. So husbands, love your wife with a special kind of love that is exclusively reserved only for her. And so as we think about how a husband is to love his wife, we have seen so far that he is to love her with a sacrificial love and a special love, but also with, thirdly, let her see in our outline, a sovereign love, also in Ephesians 5. 
This point answers the question, why does Christ love the church with sacrificial love and with special love? Is it because we are so deserving of his love? Is it because we are lovable? The answer is, of course, no. Why then does he love us? Because he chooses to love us. He loves us with a sovereign love. Christ gave himself up for the church in verse 25 as an act of sovereign love. Think about the condition that we were in when Christ first set his love upon us. Were we beautiful and attractive in his eyes? Did Christ, as it were, walk past us and do a double take because we were so attractive? The answer is no. He set his love upon us when we were sinners and rebels and enemies and spiritually dead and deformed and defiled and ruined by sin. We weren't lovable. We weren't attractive. We weren't lovely people. Christ set his love upon us when we were undone by the fall. Totally unattractive, totally unlovely. And yet he still chose to love us because his love for us is a sovereign love. It is not a deserved love. It is not an earned love. He loves us with a sovereign, free, unconditional kind of love. It is a love that is not based upon our merit or performance. It is a love that is based upon grace. On your notes, if you look at the more lengthy quote from John Piper, and this is why the font is so small on the, on the handout, because I had to fit everything onto one sheet. John Piper, speaking about the sovereign love of Christ for his own, says, Christ did not choose his wife the way we do. He did not look for an attractive woman or an intelligent woman or even a faithful woman. He chose an unlikely woman, and then he set out to make her attractive and wise and faithful at the cost of his own life. His love for us did not begin as the love of admiration. His first love for us was not a response to our beauty. We had none. His first love for us was free and unconditional. As we consider how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, we need to realize that the one upon whom he set his affection and the one that he came to die in her place was filthy and defiled by her own sin. This is the way Paul describes it in Romans 5. We were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies. You can take all of those descriptions and put them right over the bride whom Jesus chose for himself. He chose for himself a helpless bride, an ungodly bride, a sinful bride, and a bride who was in rebellion against the king. That's amazing. That's incredible. I am so humbled by that. You might ask, well, what does this have to do with husbands loving their wives? It has everything to do with it. Husbands, if you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, it means that you will love her as a sinner. You must keep in mind that your wife has fallen just like you are. 
And at times she may not appear to you to be lovely or attractive. Now to be sure, there are certainly going to be those times in marriage when your wife's beauty and her attractiveness will overwhelm you as my wife's beauty does to me. And in those times, it will be easy for you to love her. But then there are also those other times when she doesn't seem so beautiful and so attractive and so winsome because of her sin. And in those times, you are to love your wife in spite of her sins with a sovereign love. You are to love her freely and unconditionally as Christ loves you. He is the example. You are to love her as Christ loves you as a sinner, as a fallen human being. Your love for your wife is not to be based upon her merit. She's not to earn or work for your love. She doesn't need to do any of those kinds of things. Because you are to love her as Christ loves the church. So oftentimes people reduce love to a feeling, especially in our very emotional culture today. Everything is about emotion. Everything is about feeling. Everything is about how I feel about this and how I feel about that. Now don't misunderstand me. Love does include feeling. Emotion and feeling are in themselves good. They are part of how God made us. But love is much more than a feeling. In fact, I would say it like this. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is primarily a choice. People often say about their marriages, I have fallen out of love with my spouse. And they want to then dissolve the marriage. It's all about a feeling. What is the Christian response to the idea of falling out of love in marriage? I'll tell you what it is. Repent. Repent. And choose to love your spouse. Choose to love your wife because love is a choice. And you are called by God to love your wife you are called by God to seek her highest good even when she is not lovable in your eyes. Even when you don't feel like it. And so husbands, you are to love your wife with a sacrificial love, with a special love, and with a sovereign love. What a contrast to Islam. What a contrast to the ancient Greek empire. What a contrast to ancient Judaism. Now there is much more for us to see in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, but we will have to wait until next time to look at that. But I do want to conclude with a quote that is on your sermon notes, again by Owen Strand. And he's talking about husbands loving their wives. And he says this, there is no marital teaching on God's green earth that comes close to the glory of this command from an apostle. There is no religion that offers a comparable view. There is no worldview that more calls a man to maturity, leadership, and selflessness. 
There is no idea that more counters a man's sinful instinct to lord his, on average, considerably greater strength over his wife. If you want to see where abuse goes to die, look no further than at the Bible's most extended teaching on marital complementarity, and that's Ephesians 5. Christian men are summoned here by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to love their wives without limit. Their example is Jesus Christ. Headship means self-sacrifice accordingly. It means strong, courageous, convictional, tender, loving leadership of one's wife and one family. It means always thinking, always strategizing, always taking initiative, always planning for the good of the woman God gave you. And to that I say, Amen. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you. We gladly submit to your word. We gladly embrace your design in marriage. It is beautiful. It is rich. It is fulfilling. And it displays the gospel. We thank you for how you have created the institution of marriage. And we thank you for the distinctive roles that you've given to wives and husbands. And while we live in a world that is hostile to these things, we thank you that you have saved us from thinking that way. And that we do indeed, do indeed see the beauty and the richness and the goodness of your design for marriage. And as we consider the husband's role and how he is to love his wife, we thank you that the basis of that is the love of Christ for his church. We thank you that Christ has given up himself for us. We thank you that he laid down his life for our sins. We thank you that he loves us exclusively as his bride. And we thank you that it is a love that is based upon his sovereign choice, not upon our, our beauty or attractiveness. And Father, again, we find our great security in your sovereign grace that is given to us in Christ. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to be able to study these things together. And I pray that this would be more than a study, but that you would take these truths and apply them to every home that is here. That we would truly be the kind of people that are a new humanity in the home. Father, we can't do this on our own. We need your strength. We need the power of your spirit. And so please energize and strengthen your people to live out your word. And we do this for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.